For though I am in free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more for them. To the Jews I became a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So I run, that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This is the word of God. All right. If, you, uh, if you'd like to take kids back to the kids' room, now's the big moment. The kids' room is straight back there on the left. Fiona's head is sticking out of it. And, uh, but you don't have to take your kids back there. They can hang out with you too. Either way is totally fine. All right, just a moment. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to start in with this, uh, this prayer shaped around the Lord's Prayer. But just briefly, I want to say that, um, yeah, this, this text that we're going into is one, I mentioned this last week, but it's one that back when I planted one of the churches that turned into this uh, little church here, uh, this was the text that we that we started with, and I think it's just uh, I think it's really critical, not just because I like it or something like that. I mean, even commentators will say uh, this is Paul's kind of missionary manifesto. This is him saying, "Here is how I try uh, to reach people and why." So this is an important text uh, in the New Testament. So. With that said, uh, I'm going to pray this prayer a little bit longer. It's shaped around the Lord's Prayer. You'll hear, hear elements of the Lord's Prayer in it. Um, this is something that we're doing as we kind of, we'd like to see some of you shape prayers similarly and share them with the church. But for now, we're kind of uh, trying this out, seeing how it feels um, and kind of, uh, yeah, trying a new practice. So join with me now as I, uh, as I lead us in this prayer. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Father, you are the Holy One. There is no one like you in heaven or earth. You tell us who we are. You are our creator. You are the one we've gathered to worship and to hear from today. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When you came to earth, you said your kingdom was at hand and among us. You came in the person of Jesus, so your kingdom has been inaugurated. Jesus now is at the right hand of the Father with all authority, and he is the head of our church. So send us to do your will here on earth as it is in heaven by the power of your spirit. And give us this day our daily bread. We are not gods. We are weak and needy. Friends of ours like Rachel need your strength as her mother is in hospice care. Friends of ours like Grace need assurance seeking a new job in our school system. All of us need your guidance 
to help us navigate through a new year. We need your wisdom to decide what honors you and what paths are destructive and idolatrous. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We owe you, Father. We owe you every fiber of our being, all of our attention, our submission, and our praise. And we don't give it to you the vast majority of the time. How can we not forgive those who sin against us when you forgive us so often? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. All around us, we can err in uh, one way or another. Our sins feel like our safety nets. Our transgressions feel like our comfort zones. We need you to lead us because our hearts are deceptive and we cannot trust them. Deliver us, O merciful God, from the things that feel good to us. For to you is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Amen. All right. This week, we are focusing on chapter 9, verse 20 of uh, this section. Uh, and surprisingly, if you, if you know me, if you've gone to this church very long, you know there's a couple things that happen. Um, you give me a short Bible verse, and oh boy, uh, there's a lot to say. Um, give me like a, a chunk, like a whole book, and I'll be out of here in 25, 30 minutes. Somehow, the shorter you get, ooh, this one was tough. Um, there's so much I feel needs to be explained. Some of this is because I think uh, we all have different backgrounds in, in what we know about the Bible, uh, and that's difficult when we come to something like this. It's an opportunity, but it's, it's truly difficult. But, uh, but here's, here's the verse we're dialing in on today. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. Now, at first, this can be kind of a confusing statement if you think about it. I, I, like, to, I like to analyze as if I didn't know what was going on, and sometimes that works really well because I don't always know what's going on. Um, but, but I like to look at this and go, if I, if I were just reading this at face value and saying something to the effect of, here's Paul, a Jewish man, um, talking about trying to win Jews and those under the law. Wasn't he under the law? Wasn't he a Jewish person? What, why is he doing this? Um, for the last service of the year, John, John Simon here, worked out some ideas about Israel in the Bible. Uh, the Jews are the same group he was talking about, Israel. They are those who Paul also describes as under the law. And John mentioned there's this understandable connection we Christians often feel with the Jews. Um, and there's a lot of mixed feelings about this, honestly, within Christianity. Like, how much, how much should we be connected? How much should, we, should there be kind of like a, a co-working together or, you know, having the same political goals and stuff like that? And this is, this is there, this whole tension that I will not be resolving today, um, because the Bible is mostly about their story, Right? Um, I mean, it's, that's, that's really what it is. There's a lot of identification with the Jewish people, and even the New Testament includes expectations for Israel to be saved in some way, though those things or statements are interpreted differently. Um, and the New Testament church, which means any of you who say, I believe that Jesus died on the cross, you could say the Apostles' Creed or something of that nature, uh, the Bible calls you the new Israel. So what, is, what does that mean? What is that about? 
But for the moment, let's just start here. If the Jews, um, if the Bible's mostly about them, uh, they are people that God has invested a lot in. They're God's chosen people in the Bible. Why would Paul, who is actually Jewish himself, be trying to win them over to Christianity? If he was already one of them, um, why would he do that? And the shorter answer is, is that being connected by birth to the people of God, which the Jewish people were considered, being connected by birth to the people of God isn't enough. It's a gift. It's important. It can have real benefits, but it's not enough. You have to have faith placed in God's promise, which is also called a covenant in the Bible. When I read Jeremiah 31, you heard the word covenant. You have to have faith placed in God's promise and in his provision to fulfill his covenant. So you have to believe in the promises God makes and the way he keeps it. Those are the two things you have to have in order to be part of God's people. So you can be born in and not have these things. You can feel like a part and not be a part. And this has always been true. We see this in the Bible over and over. People left God's gathering of people or they were even cast out. We just read one of those um, difficult stories in the Bible um, at home. Abby read the story of Achan, um, who he steals some stuff and he is cast out in, in every way. Um, you can read about the people of Israel who uh, are delivered out of Egypt, which Jeremiah 31 also referenced, and then they get into the desert. They want to go back because uh, they're eating really, uh, really bad bread, which I can relate to on this new diet I'm on. Um, there's lots of really bad bread. Um, and so they were eating that, and they weren't happy, uh, and they, they, wanted to, they wanted to go back to Egypt. And God says, uh, you can't enter the promised land because you grumble and complain. You, you have stiff necks, he said. Uh, and, and this was an issue. And, and it can't be because these people just failed or just weren't good enough because none of the patriarchs of the Bible, no, no person in the Bible, no hero, no individual is ever good enough they must have stopped believing that God had made a good promise and in the way that he was keeping it. Okay, that The reason that they were dealing with these judgments is they didn't trust what God had provided. Now, that can be because of weakness or because of pride, and God is an excellent judge of that, and we struggle to be the judge of those kind of motives. But this must have been the situation that Paul was seeing when he looked out at the Jewish people. This must have been his appraisal, because though people were born into God's people as he had been, they did not trust in God's promise or redeemer or future hope as Paul had once not trusted in it either. Paul had been a persecutor of people that believed in Jesus, and he had not believed that Jesus was, you know, had anything to do with God's promises or faithfulness. And then he had changed his mind, and he's looking, and not just changed his mind, like he, he read a book and went, yeah, you know what, it's pretty reasonable. I mean, he had an encounter, a, a dramatic encounter with Jesus, right? But now he's saying, these people, my fellow Jews, need to have that encounter. They do not believe in the one that God has sent. So he's trying to reach them. And these people are a unique people to convince because they had some hang-ups that made it difficult. Here's hang-up number one. They saw themselves as already God's people. 
that makes it difficult to convert somebody. It's hard to say, like in our day, you need to become a Christian to someone who says, but I am already. That's difficult. That's why I am so compassionate for every pastor in the Bible Belt. It's like the hardest place ever to be one. Because everybody's like, I'm already a Christian. And, and I've, heard, I've heard some of these pastors say, it's really hard to tell people who say they're Christians that they're not, when they're actually not. So these people are difficult to convince. They saw themselves as God's people. By some, for some of them, it was by national allegiance. And I think that's who Paul is calling the Jews, okay? And others, it was by their adherence to the religion, who I think is who Paul is calling those under the law. That's simplifying it a bit. But some national allegiance, the Jews, and others by their adherence to the religion under the law. So a way that we could translate that today is this, that they saw themselves as the church already. They saw themselves as the church. And why would I say that? Because, you know, the church, here's a, here's a little word game of the day. The church just means the gathering. Another way you could put it, it's the ecclesia, but it's the gathering of the people of God. You could call it the group. Um, the people considered um, and connected, they're connected to one another and therefore considered in relationship to God. And they saw themselves as that. They would have, in our language today, in our circles, they would have said, I'm in the church. I'm in the Christian church. That's what they would have made, you know, in our modern day context, that's what it would have looked like. And so here's Paul trying to convince the church that they need to become the church. Here's Paul trying to convince Christians they need to become Christians. That's what it's like, Okay. So to, to examine what this is going to be, would be like for us and how it's going to apply, we've got to have a doctrine of the church. I'm going to give you a, um, a flyover version, okay? Um, and what it takes to be committed to the church. So that's it. That's the night. Ready? Let's do it. Doctrine of the church. Um, and doctrine just means teaching. This is what the church teaches about itself. And I'm not going to, it's not exhaustive, but I'm going to give you some of this. Um, a key thing to understand, and I think what Paul's doing a little bit in this verse, is that throughout all of history and all of scholarship, there's a, there's a, a little complication when you read the Bible, because uh, there seem to be two groups that are talked about as the people of God, or the church. There, there are the way that they look to everyone, um, the way that some, somebody who is walking down the street might look over here and they go, ah, Mission Church. And they would assume everybody who walks out is Mission Church, right? And everybody who's not here is not. That would be the assumption, right? And then God knows those who trust in him. Those are two different things, and they're both in the scriptures. So Paul, when he talks about the Jews, um, he's talking about this entire group, right? This whole, the whole nation, all of them. And in the Bible, there, God speaks um, to the large group, the whole, um, the whole body of his people, all of the Jewish people. There are times when he talks to entire churches. You'll see in Paul's letters, he's talking to entire churches. You'll see in the book of Revelation, God speaking to the churches of an entire city. So there's kind of this corporate identity, co-responsibility um, in 1 Corinthians, for example, earlier in the book that we're reading now, there's a man living with his stepmother, and this is something that Paul says shouldn't be happening. So he says the whole church is responsible for this. You, you, all, you need to gather together, have a meeting in the church. 
um, and you're all responsible. And I could see some of them going, but I'm not staying with my stepmother. Why do I have to do this? Because it's all of you. You're, you're a body. This is the whole, the whole church. I'm talking to the whole church. Um, and he, he asked the whole church to deal with it. And then he talks about how they're boasting because in the book of 1 Corinthians, um, he's responding to them. They must have been very um, proud of themselves for something. And he's saying, you shouldn't be proud of yourselves because this kind of thing is going on. And of course, 99% of them are like, I'm not doing that. Yeah, but it's happening in your midst. This is, this is the idea of what theologians call the visible church. God speaks to the whole church. Everybody that looks like they're in it, says they're in it, acts like they're in it, checks the box. He, he, sometimes he talks to the whole visible church. Um, and so a way that you could think about what is the visible church I don't know, ask somebody you know who's not a Christian, who's a Christian, you know? And, and whatever they say, that's the visible church. The, the people that look like the church to everybody else, right? So Paul describes the Jews, and I think he's talking about them kind of in those regards. Like they are the visible people of God as a whole. He's likely understanding that they have a national identity by which they kind of relate to each other, but that identity includes the idea of being the people of God. In our day, I, I, I always think about this. What's, what's close to that? I just listened to a podcast, uh, one of the Gospel Coalition uh, podcasts, uh, Colin Hansen, and he had a guy named Ryan Burge on, and he's written a book about people who are now checking the box uh, that says no, no religion in particular. Um, and that group has grown. It's grown lately. It grew a lot in the 90s, apparently. But one of my biggest surprises is they were talking about the people who are still checking the box, the box of evangelical. And what he said, he said, we're seeing a lot of people who will check the box evangelical who are also like Muslim or Mormon or something like this. This is, this is showing up in the data and has been for years. And so uh, Colin Hansen said, why would you do that? And he said, well, you and I probably assume that evangelical means something like identifying with somebody like Billy Graham, um, maybe having a, a background in fundamentalism, believing in personal evangelism or the inerrancy of scripture or something like that. But that's what you and I might think, uh, whereas the people taking the survey, uh, they seem to think of it as a political or more of a national or political identifier. That's what they think. That's how they see the term. That's how they see the grouping, okay? And, and he said, if that's what the word means to them, you can't really, I mean, you can go try to correct them all, but at the end of the day, they might call themselves evangelicals, right? That's kind of like what, it, what it's like to be connected just on a national level to the Jewish people, even if you don't hold the same religious beliefs. That's, that's possible. So, if, you're, if you want to be committed today to reach people who think of themselves as evangelicals or who might be perceived as the church by the culture, you might be, you might be talking about people who actually have, don't believe any of the core doctrines of Christianity. That's possible, right? So Paul is trying to reach the Jews, and that's more of a political or ethnic identity than, um, than, than to say that they're necessarily committed to the Jewish religion that you might read in the Old Testament. Then Paul says he wants to win those under the law. Now, these are the people who, who are, they look at the law of God and they say, I believe it, I trust it, I follow it. This is another category, but a subcategory. They're, they're part of the Jewish people, but they say, I identify with this, I follow it. 
Um, and you might ask, why would they need to be won over? And that's because you can accept the Bible and miss its climax. In fact, it's very common um, that, that you can actually discern in the Bible that he exists. You can believe a lot of things that are in the Bible. You can believe a lot of things. And at best, you can miss what he's offering to you while believing a lot of things. Or at worst, you can try to use him, use the Bible or use the law to manipulate God to achieve your own objectives. You can have a lot of information and you can use that actually to try to manipulate God, right? Now, I want to illustrate how this, how, how this disconnect can happen. So it's very easy um, to, to think, here's the law of God. I follow it, God, God might accept me, right? Here's the rules, I follow them, I'm in. That's, that's, that seems like how it just works everywhere, right? But I want to walk you through two big, some key moments here in the Bible and see, is that how it works in the scriptures? Is that how God does this? So you might ask, where did the law come from? Or I'll pose that question, where did the law come from? The first glimpse you get of law in scripture is at creation. There are three big ordinances. We call them the creation ordinances that, that come down there. They have to do with worshiping God. And, there, you know, there's the Sabbath day and God rested and we are to rest to enjoy what his creation, to see it, to, um, to praise him for it, to acknowledge it, um, and, and, and to revive ourselves on the creator. The next has to do with our vocation, or it's also called the cultural mandate. And that is the law to go into the earth and subdue the earth. And it doesn't mean trample it down. It means take its resources, develop it, work, and do productive things. Be a creator in the image of the creator. Take the creation that God has started, develop it, and do more with it. This is, this is law. This is what people are to do. This is why in every single society, there, there's no society that says, you know what, just sit in your house. Like, it doesn't matter what society. I was just reading about the, the Dutch in the Netherlands where there's like way more, you know, money to, to be just supported by than most nations and they still have this work ethic that's like, no, but you should work though. You still should. So that, that is a creation ordinance and the other is marriage. Those are the three big laws, okay? And those, you can see work out in the Bible. They're patterns from which other principles will grow. All of them. Worship develops into all sorts of ideas of how you love God and how you prioritize God. You're not going to have idols. You're not going to worship other things. When you come before God, you want to come with a pure heart. And so you're going to approach him after having made sacrifices. You don't, you don't just run into his presence and do whatever you want. There are these ideas that he is holy and you approach him as a, as a holy God. Um, the ideas of, of filling and subduing the earth, there's all sorts of laws around how you should work, how you should be productive, but how you also shouldn't like be productive to where you maximize profits and trample on the poor. There are all sorts of really good laws within there that show you the character of God and how to fulfill that stuff. And then marriage becomes this very basic and small structure that becomes that grows up into societies and corporations and all these different things in which you have structure and roles and accountability and stuff like that. It all builds these ordinances grow into a law that is actually very robust 
and very incredible, okay? So, this, though, is my point. Did God give all of those laws to people and say, if you follow them, I will create you? That's just silly, right? No. God, think about this line of thought. God gave humanity life and breath and the vast creation, beautiful, incredible, that we could go out into and enjoy and subdue, he gives it to them free. And then he gives them some law and says, here's how you please me. Here's how you honor me. But he didn't condition the grace on the law. He gave the law after the grace. And they can respond. You see that? Now, where do we get the bulk of the Bible's law? Mount Sinai. So the people of Israel, they've been delivered out of Egypt, right? There's this incredible deliverance. It's like unbelievable stuff. Miracles happen. Incredible deliverance. The people of Israel come out. They're saved from their enemies. They're given freedom from their captors. And then they sit before Mount Sinai. And Moses goes up and God delivers to him the law. Now, did God come to his people who were enslaved and say, here is a very thick law If you follow this law, I will save you. No, right? He gives them the grace. He freely delivers them by his power and then says, you who have been freely delivered, here's how to love me. Here's how to respond. Grace always comes before law. And then law becomes not for us a way to get grace. We already have it. It becomes a litmus test of do we love the God who delivered us? Do we honor the God who has given us life and breath and everything? That's why Paul at the Areopagus starts with that. He gives us life and breath, everything. Okay? The law is meant to be a way for God's people to know God and please him, a pathway to be cleansed when they try and they fail, or even when they rebel and repent, but it isn't the climax, it isn't the grace. It isn't saving grace. So if you're trying to get approval from God, you've, utterly, you've missed something, you've missed, missed the climax, you've missed the grace. You, you, need to be, you need to see it. But you can do something else with the law. You can take it and you can try to keep it perfectly, and then you can take it to God like, like a time card and say, pay me my money. You can do that too. And some of you might say, who would ever do that? Well, let me phrase it a little differently. God, I've always followed you, but why can't I ever get the job I want? Right? I followed all the rules and I never get a boyfriend. <laughs> I hear reaction to that one. I don't know. Um, you're married. What does the difference does it make? Um, or why do they get all the good things? I've always tried to be the best person I can be. Why do they, they cheat and lie and steal? What is that? That's bringing our good deeds and our obedience to God and saying, you owe me for what I've done. You owe me. It betrays a motive of the heart. Why did we obey? Because of love for God or to get something? 
And God can tell the difference. You want God the vendor, not God the giver of all good things. It happens all the time. So when Paul speaks to those under the law, these are people who may have obeyed the law. Some might have been professing Christians. Some may have been professing, uh, you know, like they were following the Jewish religion. Some of them, their hearts may have been absolutely callous to grace. They may have just been saying, I follow the rules. Give me what you owe me. Others of them may have just felt like I can never be good enough. I can never, I can never measure up. And Paul is saying, I have a message for you. I want to save you from those two approaches to the law. I want to show you grace in Christ. Now, does that, was that just Paul's day? I hope you can hear. It's not just Paul's day. This is one of the most common things that we see in our, in our day in the church. Anger at God. He doesn't bless me. Despising others. They aren't good like me. And I know how serious the pull is because I feel it too. It, the feeling that you are good and God owes you is one of the most alluring feelings in all the world because it feels like you have a chance to have God in the palm of your hand and to critique him. So the church is the gathering of God's people. Paul called them the Jews and those under the law. For us, they are the people that show up and identify with Christianity. They may be recipients of grace. They may not be. There's the true church, the the invisible church. These are people who trust in Jesus. They trust in the grace that God has provided. Um, And they consider themselves, as you heard in our text, to be under the law of Christ, which is an easy yoke, which says, I obey because I love him. Okay. And the church, who knows his grace, is called to reach the church that's just visible and to take it deeper than the national ethnic ties to the true purpose of the law. So, now, really quick, I want to just call a quick timeout in between my two big ideas and put our little outpost slide up here. This one would work, actually. That one's even better. Okay. Um, we're looking at our church's call and strategy. And this little outpost logo, that the idea is the blue circle is us. That's Mission Church. We're placing ourselves out on the edge. And the point of that is we're trying to engage with people who are outside of the church. We want to we meet them. We want to engage with them. We want to be intentional with that. But also we have ourselves inside of that red circle because the red circle is the church. And we're saying we want to be connected to the church. And I want to suggest that in that, we actually have a mission and a calling to the church itself. There's a few reasons. Some people who are within the church are are getting skeptical and moving out, and we want to be there for them to have that discussion with them. Also, we want to stay connected and love the rest of the church and even report back to them and say, hey, we have, peop- we have friends who don't believe in any of this. Here's what they're saying. You need to understand what they're saying. There's a, a real need for that. But also, we have a reaching role, and it will have to do with making sure that the church holds to the gospel of grace. And that's, and that's, what, I, and that's what I think Paul is after in this particular text is that reaching role. So I want to spend the rest of our time on this what it takes to be committed to the church. First thing, confrontation. I'm hesitant on this one because I hate it. 
I don't like confrontation <laughs> at all. And I also think that in our day and age, everybody's confronting everything. Um, and I don't want to be a part of that. But I also genuinely think this is a valid point. So here we go. Confrontation. Sad, sadly, a lot of times people who, who try to put themselves on the edge, and I've observed this in the church, um, often lose the fervor of the gospel because what they're doing is they're just trying to stay connected while they don't really like the people in the church. That happens, okay? And I don't want us to do that. I think at its best, people on the missional edge of the church can actually see the gospel at work in people's lives and can encourage the church and spurn it on to more love and good works. I think that's what we're called to do. So the church, the big, the, the broader church, the visible church, needs churches and people engaging with people who are outside to confront its complacency in that department. And I don't necessarily mean this means yelling at other Christians and telling them they're lazy or complacent. Just existing by being active and present in the lives of people who don't believe in Jesus is the criticism. Like, it is the confrontation. Just to be doing it and to be calling for more of it and to be telling the stories is the confrontation. Um, sometimes I forget how unique our church is. We, we are not big. We are not like taking over the world. But still, like the amount of, you know, I know you all, the amount of unbelievers you know and spend time with is high. And that is unique. The, the potential for like just good gospel influence is high. I know that. And it's a beautiful thing. Uh, my friend Eric, uh, pastor of the village, said just by the existence of churches like, like this, it's, just, it's a critique of churches who never touch people who don't know Jesus. But, and this, so that's one way of, of confronting. There's another way, and this one is hard to do. It's a contradict or a confrontation regarding fidelity to the gospel. And, and I want to suggest that this happens in multiple different ways, Sometimes it can happen, like I said, when, when you get out to the missional edge because you don't really like the church. There's a, you can start to say, I don't really like the gospel the church believes either. But there's another version of it that often happens when religious systems get big and inward focused, when churches get disconnected, and especially when, when churches get popular, right? They can shift allegiance. They can get tied up in things like politics. They can get tied up in maintaining the edifice. They can get tied up in public perception. They can get tied up in getting views and money, right? There's an old story, just to take this out of our context so we can you know, not like name names or whatever at the moment. But there's an old story of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he's, he died the year before I was born. He was the pastor of Westminster Chapel in London, and he was, he was a, a very committed you know, doctrinal preacher, nothing really surprising, there, but he also was very committed to speaking to the culture and engaging and trying to really make the gospel stick with others. And there was another, another pastor in his day, and their doctrine was very close, very close. But that, um, that particular pastor was very harsh to the liberals of their day, which, by the way, aren't the same as the liberals of our day. I don't know what they are anymore. But he was harsh 
to the liberals. And Lloyd-Jones sat down with him, and he, and he was talking about some other leader that he loved to read in the newspaper because he made mincemeat of the liberals. And Dr. Lloyd-Jones had been praying if he should confront this man. And he decided now's the moment. And he said to him, he said, you can make mincemeat of the liberals and lose your own soul. And the guy said, what do you, what do you mean? And he kind of went after him and said, hey, like you can, you can cease to love and be about the gospel out of your goal to make mincemeat of the liberals. And the guy seemed to be listening and took some pause. And then he said, why is it that whenever I get into one of your so-called dog fights with other leaders, why is it when I get into those, I start selling more books? And Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said, I have observed that every time there is a dog fight, people gather in the streets, but that doesn't mean that it is a good fight to have, you know, or whatever. But do you notice that? His evidence for why, why should I not stop trying to like tear people up was I'm making money at it. It's, it's an interesting thing. Look, look at the people who become big by, by being you know, super left and criticizing the right or being super right and criticizing the left. Um, and those, you know, look at, look at these people. How do their book sales do? Their YouTube monetization? Very well, right? There's money in being monstrous. Have you noticed? There is. The more monstrous you are, the more everybody, oh, they're saying the thing that nobody else will say. Money. Who could confront that more effectively than the church? I don't know. Outside critics, it just feeds it. But the church can say something to that, like Martin Lloyd-Jones did, prayerfully, um, orderly. I do not want to give anyone here a license to get on Twitter and start tearing anybody down, by the way. I'm not saying that by orderly. I mean, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was, he was a fellow minister of the word. He, had, he prayed and he waited and he spoke in turn, okay, with respect. But you see Paul doing that same kind of thing. People were using the gospel for monetary gain and he, as an apostle, goes after, he says something about it. I think we do have that call to the church, right? Then there are scores of people within the church, and probably many of us know them, who are trying to get God to pay them for their good works. That doctrine also needs to be confronted. Why? I mean, to tear them down? No, because it's toxic to their souls. It's absolutely killing them. It needs to be exposed for what it is. And then there are churches like Corinth who, who think they know it all, but they do not love. And, and Corinth, by the way, by Paul, was, was critiqued in two directions. They were not loving to the person who needed to be disciplined, who's living romantically with his stepmother. They, they weren't loving enough to engage with that difficult conversation. But also, they weren't loving enough to lay down their rights to serve people who, who were disturbed by meat sacrificed to idols, like we talked about last week. And Paul was saying, you have all kinds of knowledge, but you need to love. You need to love. And that critique is important. But even here, Paul says, what does he say to the people? I mean, if you, I hope some of you are reading the whole book of 1 Corinthians. I'm just going to suggest that every week from now on. Just read the whole thing. It's not hard. It's shorter than most things you read online. So the, he says, how do you do it? Go on a Twitter rant or go screaming in the street? No, call a meeting of the church. 
He doesn't say go off on them. Do it in a respectable, orderly way. Our tendency, though, can be to criticize outsiders, to criticize the world, and take it easy on our people. But Jesus and Paul took sin the most seriously in the church. Even here in 1 Corinthians 5, when Paul learns that this guy's living with his stepmother, he's like, deal with it. And he says, have nothing to do with the sexually immoral. And then he stops for a second because he knows people are going to misunderstand. And he said, I'm not talking about people out in the city, out in the world, or else you'd have to leave the world. It's one of my favorite little quotes of his. He's like, you, if you're thinking this, you're so silly. You're, you're literally going to have to fly away to get away from sexual immorality. But don't put up with it here in the church where people say that they follow Jesus. Don't criticize the culture. Look at the log in our eye. That's what we're called to do. We reverse this constantly. Constantly. Imagine how much less hypocrisy we'd exhibit to the world if we took that seriously. How many fewer abuse scandals there would be. How much less Christ's work would be tarnished if we took any of this seriously. I'm talking to the whole church right now. But we need to be careful. We need to discern hearts because some just don't see grace. While others want to use grace as a license or the law as a club, we have to discern between these things in the church. Another way to reach the church, we're going to have to sacrifice a lot more than we'd expect. Paul teaches us that. Um, Paul, at one point, has Timothy circumcised to reach Jewish people, by the way. That's a big deal. I, I just... Just think about that for a second. Grown man, Timothy. Hey, I want to reach the Jewish people. Here's an idea. Um, I think you should get circumcised. Um, In the ancient world, by the way. Um, Elsewhere, Paul shaves his head to to actually accommodate a vow that more cultural Jewish people would have followed. He knew he didn't have to do that. He didn't have to shave his head to keep his promise, but he chose to. Paul does, he sacrifices more than you'd expect. And he explains to us in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians why he does that. He says, be imitators of me. And he's talking about serving Jews and Greeks and the church of God in that section. He says, be imitators of me. How? As I am following Christ. So when he sacrifices and lays things down, he sees it as a way of following Christ. We're not out to offend, but to save and seek the advantage of others. So what does this mean? This means, Mission Church, don't be a pill to the rest of Christianity. Try to help. Love. Endure all things. Hope all things. Lay down whatever you can. Um, here's, here's a small and seemingly petty example, but I think it could be symbolic of bigger things. There's a tendency in Christians about my age to use just about as much filthy language as possible as Christians, okay? Okay. And um, there's all the Christians who cuss, you know, like feeds that you can follow and all this stuff. And here's how the thought process usually goes. They've discovered some deep doctrines of the faith, usually one of these. Like, I am not justified by works of the law, but I am justified by grace alone. It's kind of a especially young Calvinist thing. And nothing can separate me from the love of God. So therefore, if I drop a major F-bomb, it doesn't really matter. I'm not justified by the law, and this isn't how I stay justified, okay? So... These great majestic doctrines become reduced down to saying, I can now talk like a drunk college student who's 
binged Beavis and Butthead. That's the big idea. Like, the majestic doctrines of justification by faith alone and the security of the elect get reduced down to, I can just, like, I can talk like Beavis and Butthead? I mean, that's our big application. Wow, right? There must be a deeper application. So, okay, say that's, say you're right. Grace is greater than our behavior. But here's what Paul would say. If it offends your mom or her pastor or your old friend from the Wesleyan church or the grandma who walked in with their friend at church, drop it. Sure, you're not justified by not talking that way, but, but drop it. It's such an easy thing to drop. It's so meaningless. So whoop. Because the call to love is a higher call than you being able to exercise your rights. Now look at the visible church in our country. We need to learn this. This, this cussing thing, small issue, right? The, we can't lay anything down these days. We think our rights are the most important thing. I want to praise someone in another church who I can't name, but this is people I know. I heard about a family who is anti-vaccine. Now, I know I'm touching a sacred cow. Just hang in there with me, all right? They were anti-vaccine before COVID, and they talked to friends in their church, and the people in their church were mostly pro-vaccine. And they were very worried about their children playing together, and they met about this, and they talked about it, and they were hard conversations And in this case, the anti-vaccine family decided to vaccinate the entire family to maintain the peace of the church. Now, that is an incredible choice. Not based on any of the morality of vaccination. I just take all that out for a second. Why is it amazing? Because it was oriented toward others and toward the unity of the body of Christ. Not just what's safest for me. Right? It took sacrifice. They potentially felt like they were risking the harm of their children to do that. Do you realize what a big deal that choice was? I cannot look at those. Every time I see them, I see saints walking through the city. When I see, I see them, I'm like, you did that? What? Like I told you, Timothy was adult circumcised. Talk about something that they didn't want to do. Here, Paul is teaching us to be the kind of people who will wear a mask we don't want to wear sometimes. But then if we get together with grandma and she wants to see your smile, we'll take it off. I'm not talking about which which one's right or which one's wrong. We're thinking, what does it take to love? who would read out of the old King James, right? People who might um, take their hats off in church because somebody was offended by it. Go to a church that sang cheesy songs that had mediocre preaching to be with other believers. Why? To be accepted by God? No. To love and exhibit the grace of God to the church and to the watching world. We are terrible at this. Terrible at this. 
on both sides of the political spectrum. We want to exercise our rights. And Paul and Jesus are calling us to sacrifice. It takes a lot of work. I know it takes a lot of work. It's easier just not to participate. That's what 40% of Christians are currently doing in the United States. They're just not participating at all with any of it. But that isn't Christ-shaped sacrifice. Because being a part of the church isn't just for you. Here's, here's why. Why do you participate in the church? My last thing has to do with presence. I'm almost done. Why do you participate in the church? I want to tell you, number one, why do you participate in church? To be with God who's called you here, to hear from him in his word, and to reciprocate with thanksgiving. That's why you come. That's why we do this. That's why we're here. Number two, you do it for the other people to encourage them and to serve them and to hear how they're doing and to be there for them, to support them. And then third, for our good. And we reverse those three every single time. It's, it's so easy. Me too. Like I, I have, always have to think about this. If I moved to a new town, what would I be doing? I'd probably be looking for where's the church that I like, right? The one that I like, where I like the teaching and I like the music. And then secondly, be like, hopefully I make some friends. And third, well, I'll, yeah, I'll praise God. Flipped. Utterly flipped. It is. It's utterly flipped. It's I'm, Jesus compels me to come and worship him. Then I serve others, and I grow. I benefit. I've heard people say about our church that they said, well, I came, I didn't see any of my friends. Yeah, that's because, just like you, they aren't here. I mean, like, last week, you weren't here, and they didn't see you. Like, the solution has come. I don't know. That's not... That was just too easy. I don't know. Here's, here's the principle. Forget like coming. Here's the principle. Be what you wish others were being for the church. If you ever look at the church and say, I wish people were more loving or when I came in, they were, they were greeting people. Great. Come. Love. Greet. That will help. Right? Or like do what you wish others were doing. I wish there was more serving. I wish we had like the food, you know, I wish we had better meals back again. Okay. Come. Make them. Join us. You know, that's, it's, that's what we have to do. At some point, we have to own the calling of what it is to be the church and, and be it. And then, after all that, it is true. It's for your good. You will grow. So, look, here's, my, like I said, my last point here is presence. I'm going to tell you about my personal trainer for a second because I'm learning something. I'm eight weeks in to having a personal trainer. So, my personal trainer, yes, or uh, yeah, yesterday morning, um, he, he, he brought out a box 30 inches tall and said, jump on top of that. And I said, it's not going to happen, man. It's not going to happen. And he was like, how about 24? And I said, I'm really not feeling good about that either. And he put it to 20. And I said, maybe. And he said, okay, jump on top of it. So I jumped. And I made it 16 times on top of a 20-inch box. Yes, thank you. Thank you. But he was watching me, right? He's sitting there staring at me. He's been staring at me for weeks. And, and he goes, your right leg is weaker than your left. I said, okay, how do you know? He said, because you have to like twist it more to jump. Every time your left leg stays steady, your right leg has to twist. And then he said, where is your back problem? And I say, it's always on the right. He goes, ah, your right leg is weak. We need to work on your right leg. We need to exercise your right leg. Okay, how did he know that? 
He's been meeting with me regularly and watching me do what I do. Right? And the other thing is he knows what he's talking about with leading me in exercise. I know how to walk around. I know all kinds of things about my body, but he knows a lot more. That's going to church. Being with people who can watch you try to be what you're claiming you are, a Christian, and walking with, and watching you do that, and they could say, ah, this is a little bit off, this is a little bit tweaked. And then there's a place for like elders and deacons in your life who have put a lot of time into this. I know you know a lot about following Jesus, but I think some of us have put in a lot of time. You might want to try listening. I am learning this in in working out. Paul, at the end of our scripture, in 1 Corinthians 9, starts talking about athletes and how they exercise and how they they put in self-control. To Timothy, at another place, he says, look, physical exercise is of some value, but godliness is of more value because it prepares you for the life to come, right? Like this investment into our spiritual lives is what what the Bible is, is screaming at us is it's saying, This is the most important thing in life. If there is a creator, as I've said there is, right? And the Bible is saying there is. And he's given us grace and he's taught us how to please him. And then he entered into the world and suffered for our sake, built his church because it says Jesus is the head of the church and he's the one that makes sure that the gates of hell don't prevail against it. And he's put you inside of it. Then this is actually the most important thing you engage with ever. Your job is just paying some bills. Your marriage is temporary, preparing you for Jesus. I know it doesn't feel that way, but we have to invest more in this. I want to invite you to invest in being a part of the people of God way more than you would if you decided to take exercise extremely seriously, which means that you would have daily practices, weekly practices, and that you would really invest in saying, hey, show me where I'm weak. Help me. That's the invitation. Why is it important? Because we need to train our mind and body what to worship. We need to train our minds and bodies to love the church and to commit to it more than all of the competing agencies, the government, sports, school, all these things that are, that are like they're presenting themselves. They have temples, they have rituals, they have worship services. They all do. They have songs that get stuck in your head. They all do. And Jesus is saying, my church is where I want to form you. Into the image of my son, into people who know that it's by grace that you're saved, not by works. Into people who can see I've been given a gift I get to obey. And finally, Jesus loves the church. That means he loves every single one of you so much. Think about it this way. Like when we come to the Lord's table, Jesus is here. We're approaching like bread and wine, but that's Jesus has told us, I am with you always. Like this invitation is he's like, even though you can't see me, I'm here. I want to be with you. I want to hear your words of affirmation to me. I want to hear your praises. I want to see you listening to the scriptures that I have entrusted to my church. I want you to bump into the other people I love very much and encourage them and hear encouragements from them. 
I want you, when your right leg is weak, to have somebody look at you and say, I can help you with that. And I see that. And he's here, and he loves us. And he set a table for us. Which is why Paul says that Jesus presents himself to us. He is the body broken for us. He is the blood that has been shed for us. Jesus sat with his disciples, of course, broke the bread and said, every time you eat this, remember me. But then he told them too, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So the invitation tonight, by the way, I don't want to just, I don't want you just to come to church to like not get a talk. I know we're talking about this a lot. I want, I want you to come to be with Jesus. I really do. I, I want you to feed on him daily. I want you to look back someday and say, those practices have formed me. I love Jesus more, and I know his grace more. Okay. We're going to enter into a time of confession now, and this is just silent space for you to, to talk to God about whatever you need to from tonight. Um, this is approaching the, the lawgiver. I mean, you can imagine it that way. This is approaching the grace giver. Um, if, if any of those things have stood out to you or have felt foreign to you, if you need to make a confession to him of some form, or if you just need to say, please show me who you are, this is a great time. Uh, after that time of confession, after two minutes, I'm going to pray us into that. And after that, Mike will start leading some songs, and then I will come up here and dispense uh, the Lord's Supper, which this is his supper. He is here. I'm, I'm just handing you stuff. But he is the one offering his body and his blood to you and calling us to, to see his sacrifice for us so we can pattern sacrifice to others. That's the, that's the calling. And after that, um, as we sing together, we'll finish and have dinner together. And I hope you stick around and hang out and encourage one another. So... Let's pray and enter into confession. Father in heaven, you love your church. Um, you know, I think about the book of Revelation where the, the new city, the new Jerusalem descends down and there's a bride. And you are looking at the bride. You love the bride. And the bride is not me. The bride is not any one of us. It's all of us. It's your church. You died for us. You've cleansed us. You're waiting for, for the day that you spend uninhibited time with us when, when all of the brokenness is gone, when the separation is utterly torn down, when the new city descends to the earth and we can walk with you like Adam and Eve did in the garden. When these laws are no longer laws, when they're just what come from the overflow of our hearts because we see you and we understand you and we know how gracious you were to receive us. So, Father, as we come before you and confess, may we come before you knowing how much you delight in us and love us and long to be with us. So guide us now as we pray.